absolutely taking them over. Christians are in a small minority today. The strongest religion in the penitentiary world is Islam. And it's rapidly growing because people are looking around for an absolute. And Islam caters to the flesh. Christianity looks anemic, looks effeminate to them because of, of the grace principle. But Islam insists that it has with Muhammad the prophet a brand new chunk of revelation that corrects the previous revelation. I mean, they are, they're right up front. It's not continuous. It corrects the previous revelation. Now, you never find that in the lineage of the prophets. Nobody's correcting anybody. They are extending it under the sovereignty of God, but they're not, you don't find Daniel and Jeremiah saying, Moses made mistakes, now I've got to come in. God sent me because I'm going to straighten out Moses. Where do you find that in the Scriptures? You see, there's a continuity there, and that protects us. That tells us what is genuine and what is counterfeit. So, here's Daniel, and he faces a problem, because he says in verses 2 and 3 that the... the uh, he, he's looking for the, the prophecy from, from uh, Jeremiah, which says that there's going to be 70 years, and then it's going to be over, the de time of desolations. So he then says, well, what has happened to him in Daniel chapter 2? In Daniel chapter 2, what new information did Daniel get? Daniel got certain information from God, Let's draw this conflict out because we want, we're, what we're talking about now, here's one of these apparent conflicts in the Bible. On the one hand, in Daniel chapter 2, we have the four kingdoms. First kingdom is Babylon. Second king is Media Persia. Then Greece. Then Rome. Now, which kingdom is Daniel living in when Daniel chapter 9 is written? Well, he's written, he says that first king is Darius. Of what descent? Media. So Daniel on this timeline is located right here. So in one hand, he's got prophecy that says that there's going to be the time of the Gentiles that long. And yet he has the prophecy of Jeremiah that says 70 years are up. So how can you have a restoration of Israel? Because for Israel to be restored, what has to happen? She has to be free to reign under the Messiah, and she can't be untrodden under the foot of the Gentiles. So it's an interesting problem that comes up here. And Daniel's very sensitive to it. I mean, after all, this man was high up in uh, the administration of both the Babylonian and Medo-Persian kingdoms. He was equivalent to a foreign policy advisor today. So he was very tuned in to the movements of history. So he's got to deal with this. It looks like the prophetic utterances of Scripture are wrong. And you can well imagine him saying, well, gee, you know, I'm reading here in, in Jeremiah, Lord, that 70 years are up, so that ought to be the point. But then on the other hand, you've spoken through me, and you've said there's going to be four kingdoms along. So how do we, how do we deal with this? So that's why... Uh, he, he seizes on something that's very, very interesting. You'll notice in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, we mentioned this last time, that he does not approach this theoretically. Daniel isn't abstracting himself from the pro prophecy. Now, oftentimes we have, we'll have prophecy conferences. We don't have those anymore, I guess, in, uh, in fundamentalism. We used to. But... Oftentimes, you get people that will really help on prophecy, forgetting that knowing about what's going to happen in the future has got to be applied to today. So there's got to be a today application, or it's no spiritual benefit to me. So what Daniel does, instead of taking a fatalistic view, when we get into the doctoral section, you'll see how this comes out in his prayer, but he's not saying, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. He's an astute enough student of the Jeremiah text in Jeremiah 29 to understand that the kind of thing that's going to happen in 70, right here, that can't happen until it's preceded by confession. Now, why is that? What principle? 
Well, let's go back to Old Testament history. There's the principle. How did they get in the exile? What caused the exile to start with? It was sin. What was the exile? It was discipline because of sin. Well, if the discipline is going to be removed, what has to happen? We've got to confess our sin. So, Daniel recognizes the principle, and immediately in Daniel 9, he applies it, and that's why he has that big, long prayer, verse 4, verse 5, verse 5. It's just basic elementary theology. And he doesn't take a fatalistic view that this 70th year, we don't have to do anything, just going to happen all by itself. God parachutes it in somehow. doesn't work that way. He responds... And what he's doing, he's articulating a prayer, as we said last week, that's very well designed, heavily designed, on the basis of Scripture. Then, in verse 20, the answer comes. And God is going to expand the revelation. Now, here's, there's got a lot of principles that operate in this, and we're, we're going to maybe take a little excerpt, as I said uh, last week, after we got through this restoration. I want to just take a, a Thursday evening out and we're going to cover this issue of the millennium, the premillennial, postmillennial, and so forth, because I want to go over how you interpret prophecy. The arguments aren't between the different views. The argument surrounds how, what are the ground rules we're using to interpret prophecy. That's where the debate is. So, here we know that there's 70 literal years. Why do we know that? Because Jeremiah says so. And we know that subsequently from 586 to 516, that's the exile. 516, they're coming back to the land. So it verified. It wasn't 70 ages. It was 70 years. But the angel sent from God now begins to interpret the Jeremiah prophecy and add something to it not in conflict, but to supplement it, because what is going to have, the angel is giving Daniel his answer. The angel is going to answer Daniel's question as to how can this happen in 586, and of course we know the Roman Empire exceeded the time of Jesus Christ. So, the angel is going to explain to Daniel how it can be that Jeremiah was talking about 70, yet you have four kingdoms here before the Son of Man comes. So the angel says, 24, verse 24, and it literally reads in the Hebrew, Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now what, the, what that literally says is there's going to be, Daniel, seventy sevens. Now here, for Jeremiah, the, the initial condition, that verified as 70 years. But the angel says, in answer to your question, this is a partial restoration. Because the nation, spiritually, has not universally confessed their sin. There's been no universal Daniels confessed, maybe pockets here and there. So there's a partial restoration based on a partial confession. Seventy years, so the angel says, now we're going to have seventy sevens. Now the prophetic scholars interpret this, these seven, as years. Or 490 years. Five centuries of time, the angel says. Five centuries of history until, it says, the transgression is finished to make an end of the sin. Now, let's go back to Israel's history and look at the end of sin. What does the angel mean when he says the end of sin? He's referring to the fact that the nation's in trouble because of their sin. The exile, the angel says, in other words, will continue partially for 490 more years. All right. Now let's come back to the text of what he details it. But there are details in here because obviously Christ hasn't come in 470 years to end the transgression, to make an end of sin and to make the city holy. So let's look at the fine print. The fine print says, so you ought to know, verse 25, and discern 
that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the Gentiles given authority to Israel to rebuild, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So, seven sevens and 62 weeks. It will be built again with the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 sevens, 62, so we're, we've lost some time in here. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. Now, this is an eloquent prophecy. So, the Messiah is going to come in here after 7 plus 62, after 69 weeks or 69 sevens, it says the Messiah will come, but he will be cut off. And that places him in the Roman Empire. Now, this prophecy is so exact. Granted, there are some problems with chronology because there's three or four problems with what decree and what year the decree was in. But, I mean, we're not off here by a lot. That's the time period between the time Daniel heard this and the time the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene. And it says clearly that the Messiah is going to be cut off. Now, the interesting thing is, you would have thought somebody in the New Testament, and all the arguments that are going on about Jesus Christ, somebody besides Jesus would have referenced this passage. And here the Pharisees are, the students of the day, and they never discuss the passage that talks about the Messiah being cut off. So, the Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. So, he's going to basically be rejected by the nation. He's going to be cut off, he has nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, there's a prophecy that is very relevant to us today. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who are those people? The people who invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD, who were the Romans. The Bible says those peoples are the peoples of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is going to come out of the stock of these people. And it says that they will destroy the city, the sanctuary, its end will come with a flood even to the end. And then you'll notice, whereas in verse 26 it says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. There, the subject of the verb destroy is the people. But if you go down to verse 27, a subtle change happens in the text. Notice now the subject is no longer a plural, but it is a singular. And it says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one, one seven. He, who is he? He is the prince who is to come, the great ruler who is to come. We know him as the Antichrist. He will come, he will make a firm contract with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grains and offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction. This is that false prophet and Antichrist mixed together here in this passage, explained later in the book of Revelation, which we're not getting into on Thursday night. Our point here is not to go into a big prophecy exposition. Our point is that the angel is expanding prophecy at this point. He is adding to prophecy. He's not contradicting it. He's explaining that history is dynamic. And this is something that um, it took me a while to get hold of, but it's something I think we need to have in our circle so we keep balanced. From the standpoint of God, history is already in his head. So he's omniscient, and he knows everything that's going to come to pass. The problem is, we never can get in his head. He is utterly incomprehensible to us. And for us to sit here and think that we can draw a diagram of the knowledge that God has in his head makes us God. All we have is what he has chosen to reveal. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do them. What he has in his mind, he only knows. Now, he reveals bits and dabs, but the interesting thing about history is that he responds to what we do. Now, how he can respond to what we do and keep history perfectly uh, rational is, is only God can do that. 
But there's a response here. You'll notice that, first of all, to go back to Israel's history, remember it was prophesied in Moses' day that this exile would happen. But if you look at the text that we went laboriously through all last year, what caused the exile? Was it because God had lightning clouds over Israel and it caused, it, caused a big depression and they went into exile? Not at all. They went into exile because of their rebellion. It was their choice. So they freely chose to rebel, and yet in freely choosing to rebel, they perfectly fulfilled God's word. And the skeptic will look at that and say, well, then God must have been like a pulling strings like a puppet. No. You can only think of that, and I can only think of it as a puppet, because in our finitude, the only way we can control something with strings. Yet he's in perfect control of history, but he does it in such a sneaky way that he doesn't annihilate human responsibility. It goes on. We spend eternity discussing that question. So, the point of the angel to Daniel is that there's very specific things, Daniel. History has a pattern. History has a purpose. It is not contradiction. It will all work out. And that's the big message that we want to get at. All right. Now, we want to move to something else, the sovereignty and human responsibility. So I want to take you on a brief visit to three men who wrote in the closing hours of the nation Israel. They are the last of the prophets. So if you'll open the, the, the Bible to the guys that you don't often, it's the unopened part of your Bible. Um, go to Haggai. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. You'll see uh, it's HZ, HZ, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai. What I want to do is I want to show you just a few passages that these three men wrote. So you can see that they are ministering now to the group of Jewish people who came back from the exile. They're ministering to this restoration group. These people have, have gone back into the land. They've settled there. They've re reformed their homes. So they've come all the way back into the land, 586 or 516, rather, and they will stay in that land on to 70 A.D. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 5. Keep in mind, this is the generation that experienced fulfilled prophecy. They experienced the fulfillment of being restored after 70 years. They experienced that prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, you could say, well, then... They don't have any responsibility. Oh, but they do. Notice verse 5. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earn wages to be put into a purse with holes. Doesn't that sound familiar? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, what's the appeal that the Lord is making through Haggai. Is it to just sit on their laurels because they have prophecy fulfilled? No. It's to get on with it. They have a responsible area of the will of God for their lives. So Haggai addresses the need for human responsibility. And he does so uh, on through chapter 2. If you look at chapter 2, You'll, go, you'll see that in verses 15, 16, 17, he's talking about discipline upon the nation. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you don't come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month and the day when the temple of the Lord was found. Consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. And yet from this day on, I will bless you. Now he says... Verse 21 and 22. You see, verses 15, 16, 17 addresses human responsibility. But God also wants people to understand. He wants us to understand because the pressures of life, when we face them, we need to know that He has the final say. I've got to trust that. If I don't have real confidence right now that God's in control, then I can't be in control. I can't, I can't cope. So I have to have that assurance, even though I may have a problem that he's addressing in my life right now. I've got to have that bigger assurance. 
And you'll notice how merciful God is. He's chewing them out in verse 15, 16, and 17. But then in verse 21 and 22 is the prophecy that comes through Haggai. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the power of the kingdoms of the Gentiles. I will overthrow chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. He's talking to the leaders of this group. We could see the same theme in Zechariah, which we really don't have time to do tonight. But keep in mind, Zechariah is another guy. He's the next fellow in line here. Now if you turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Again, let's ask a question of the text. Is he giving them a comfort thing here, or is he addressing their responsibility, their human responsibility? A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, said the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised thy name? You're presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? This is a little bracket that was going on in the temple, sort of a foreview of what happened when Jesus had to clean it out. So... There, Malachi is addressing human volition, human choice. But if you turn to the end of the book, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, you'll see this always ends at the end of these guys. They all look forward to something great that's going to happen in the future. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. See, it's always God's holiness is never compromised. However he pulls off this prophecy business, it's always a confession, a revival. The blessing always comes that way. That's why, in the, in we'll, we'll mention that when Jesus came into Jerusalem the last days of his life, he made that strange remark to the crowds. Remember, they were gathered together. And he said... You will, not, you will not see me until you shout, uh, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And he quoted a psalm. What he's saying is, I'm not coming back, Israel. And I'm not going to come back. I can come back any time, but I'm not going to come back until I'm invited. And the people who are going to have to invite me are you. You're the ones that crucified me, and you're the ones that are going to have to invite me back. So it's, it's up to the choice of Israel. And in that sense... And it's a kind of a unique way to think about it. But in what that sense, Israel is a stumbling block to world peace. Real world peace. Because until Israel gets right with the Lord, the world can't get right. It's all pending. It's all waiting. The Jew first and then the Gentile. And it's interesting. We have a prophetic calendar, which we'll study uh, this year, uh, the Jewish calendar has a spring cycle to it and it has a fall cycle to it. And in the spring, you have the um, Passover, you have the Feast of First Fruits, and you have Pentecost. In the fall, you have Yom Kippur, Day of the Atonement, and you have the Feast of Tabernacles. You also have the Feast of Trumpets over in here too. But in the spring calendar, notice, what day was Jesus crucified on? Passover. What day did he rise from the dead? That year it was the first fruits day. And what day did the Holy Spirit come? He came on the day of Pentecost. Now that's half the Jewish calendar, but the other half doesn't fit anything yet. There are three more events on the Jewish calendar. What are those? Apparently they're set in place, ready to be fulfilled, that in the fall, because the, the Feast of Tabernacles represents the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, I believe that the Millennial Kingdom is going to fall, fall whatever year it comes, it's going to fall that day. Now, this doesn't say what day Christ returns. That's the rapture. That can happen anytime. But what I'm saying is that the Jewish calendar is only 50% filled as of today. It's more, to, more, more coming. But it always comes perfectly. You know, it just comes right mathematically Perfect. Because God is the one who is the great mathematician. 
He doesn't come and say, oops, the calendar changed, and I've got to adjust it. He comes exactly on the day that he's supposed to come. All right. We've covered Daniel now and Daniel's decree. If you'll turn in the notes now, there's one other thing we need to pick up. On page 79, oh, we've already covered that, the last of the prophets. Let's go to page 80. And I want to, in the remaining time tonight, deal with another problem that we get into as believers, and that is, what about the thing we hold in our lap? Is that the Word of God or isn't it? People will say, and, and it, it's, a, it's a struggle. Christians have struggled with this. You notice the doctrinal statement of the church, our doctrinal statement? Uh, it, it does what most doctrinal statements do when they talk about the Word of God. They say, well, we believe in the inspired Bible in the original autographs. Well, that's, that's correct as far as it goes. The problem is, how do we know what we got approximates the autographs? great to know the Word of God came, you know, 1900 years ago and was finished and the Apostle Paul wrote it, but how do we deal with the problem of textual variations? That's the issue we're going to talk about right now. Now, I'll tell you why I spend time addressing this. This isn't just for seminary, okay? This is because Islam attacks right here. The Muslims attack the Christians this way. The Muslim argues that they have direct lineage back to 600 A.D. on their text because it was written in Arabic and it was passed on by scholars who took it right from Muhammad. There's no breaks in it and so forth and so on. But you Christians, you, can't, you don't have a line of texts. You just got surviving manuscripts here and there. And the Bible's contaminated. What you're holding in your lap isn't the Word of God. It's just a shredded version of it. So we need the Koran. The Koran has superior power to the Bible because the Koran has a textual lineage that we can touch, taste, and handle. We know for certain. Well, let me just back up one other step if, if you get into this. You might not always get this from a Muslim. You can get this from an ordinary person on the street, secular humanist. And they'll argue, well, you can't really be sure that what you guys are having there, that Bible thing that you've got, you can't be sure that that's the way it was originally. I mean, after all, 1,900 years have come and gone since that text was written. How can you be sure of that? Well, you know, a quick turnaround. Remember what we said when we started this class? It gets back to, you know, martial arts and judo. One of the techniques in judo is you take the, the guy's punch and pull it further and make him work against himself. Well, it's the same shrewd deal you can work with apologetics. If you really are convinced that we don't have the original text of the Bible, that must also mean we don't have the original text of Aristotle. We don't have the original text of Plato. We don't have the original text of any other historical book. So they're fine. Dump the Bible out and dump all the rest of the books out too. Why are you bothering studying all those books then? Say... The, the textual evidence behind the scripture is much better. You get Josh McDowell's book, Evidence Demands a Verdict or something, and he'll give you all of the little references to the text. What we want to deal with here is the overall concept of what happened in the closing years of Israel. Because here's where the text problem started. The reason is that the Old Testament ended here. With Malachi, the Old Testament was closed. No further text. It ended, terminated, over and out. No more revelation. 400 years, no revelation. No prophets. No word from God. Only the surviving text of these prophets. So on page 80, if you look at the bottom paragraph, when God ceased speaking to humanity through Israel in the 5th century, there began a 4th century period of divine silence with a total absence of verbal revelation and confirming miracle. Several evidences support this argument. Not one of the many books written during this period of the silence of God ever was considered as inspired scripture worthy of being introduced in the canon. And other evidences show the people themselves knew there was a silence. In 164, when Judas Maccabeus wanted to cleanse the Antiochus's abominations from the temple, he and the priest tried to decide what to do. And here's a quote. And I, I italicized a little section in the quote so you can see how the Jews thought 160 years before Jesus. Now, they're dealing with a problem. They don't have any prophets. 
They don't have any text, but they're conscious of that. See what's so interesting? So look at that last sentence that he writes. So they tore down the altar and they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do. Now, how do they know that? Maybe, well, let me just say that again so we make sure we understand the implications that italicized part of that sentence. The very fact that they know they didn't have a prophet tells you that they knew when these prophets were operating because they knew when they weren't operating. Something about the real thing convinced the people. And they knew intuitively, in spite of the fact that Judas Maccabeus was a great Jewish leader. I mean, he could have qualified for the Messiah. This guy knocked off some of the most ugly people in history. A fantastic... If you ever want to read First Maccabees, Catholic Bible, it's a neat book, First Maccabees. Tremendous story of Jewish history. And in that, Judas could have become a Messiah. He delivered his people. But he himself knew that he wasn't the Messiah. And not only did he know that he wasn't the Messiah, he knew he couldn't even claim to be. And not only that, he knew there wasn't even a prophet around. That's, that's how they spoke. This is his words. We're not making this up. This is his own words. So, what do we say then? A principle grows out of this, and we studied it last year actually, but it comes to dramatic focus here. You can't have scripture written without a living prophet. Those two guys go together. Now, let me take it another way backwards. This is what is wrong with people in evangelical circles who talk today about this prophet. The gift of prophecy is operating. If the gift of prophecy is operating today, where is Revelation 23? The gift of prophecy functions to generate the Word of God in Scripture. That's the way it always has. I mean, we've got the little record here. It goes back a while. Two or three thousand years of tradition. Why all of a sudden we, you know, we're getting jerked all around and saying now the prophetic gift doesn't do it? Well, it was used to. What changed here? So when we see these two, put these two words together in your head. It'll save you grief, believe me, because you'll hear this. People make these inane remarks and don't think what they're saying. Now we come then, if the Old Testament text ended here, what do we do between the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ? That's all we're going to deal with. We're not going to deal between the end of the Old Testament and us. We're going to deal between the end of the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have a period of 400 years about. Now, how do we know that the Lord Jesus and the apostles had the Old Testament text, the Word of God? It's the same question that we're being asked. How do we have the New Testament text? Well, how did the Lord Jesus have the Old Testament text? It hadn't been written for 400 years. It goes back to manuscripts. And I'm going to draw a diagram on here, and I didn't, on the, unfortunately, in the notes. But if you have a piece of paper, this diagram might help you see this. Um, someday when I do the notes again, I'll, I'll put this in. Here is the family tree that best it can be reconstructed of what happened to the Old Testament writings. Visualize this as a map um, of the Near East. And uh, here you have... Uh, Israel, and over here you have Babylon and others fled to Egypt. So you had three centers of the Jewish community. The people over here were very, very faithful to keep writing the text for reasons which we'll go into later. These people were called the Masoretes. They preserved a tradition of Old Testament texts that translators used to translate the English version. Jews that went down into Egypt had a Hebrew text also, but what happened to it, not, people don't know, but they, they went ahead and they translated it into Greek, which is the Septuagint. Sometimes you're reading and you'll see this, the Roman numeral, the 70. That's the, that's the symbol 
for that, that Bible. It was a, a pop version of the Old Testament for the street. They spoke Greek. They forgot their Hebrew. Don't speak Hebrew anymore. Greek was the language of the, of the world at the time. So they translated that Hebrew text into Greek. Along comes Qumran in 1948, citing a story of a little Arab boy who was throwing rocks. Boys always throw rocks. And he, those caves up in Qumran, and he heaved this rock up, and he's used to hearing it go clunk, 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 clunk. And one day he heaved the rock up, and it made a funny noise. And so he walked into the cave, and he saw these pots in shards. And the rock had hit down inside one of these urns. So he started rummaging around. He got his dad and his uncle involved. And the first thing we know is they discovered some texts in there, Old Testament texts, ancient texts of the Old Testament that were buried by the Qumran community. This is 1948. The text date from 100 B.C. Texts have been sitting there for 2,000 years in those urns. So now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we got three things here. We've got the Babylonian text, we've got the Dead Sea Scroll text, and we've got this Greek text that had a Hebrew text behind it. So now let's test. That's what I do on the chart on page 82. Let's look at how these texts differ. Everybody said, oh, there are big differences in the text. Well, let's just see what the big differences are. And we've chosen a very interesting passage of scripture, Isaiah 53. I've taken five verses of Isaiah 53, and I've gone through all three of those text types. Got a book out on scroll A. There's several other scrolls that did see. The Hebrew Masoretic text. Now, you'll see dates on that table. Notice the date on the top of the, on the first one, the Hebrew Masoretic text, at 980 A.D. You say, wait a minute, whoa. 980 A.D.? Yes, that's the oldest that we have of this textual tradition this Babylonian text type. The earliest manuscript we got is 980. Okay? Which makes an interesting test. How many years difference between the Masoretic text and the Qumran text? Look at the date of the Qumran text. Column 2 in the table. You see its date? 125. The Hebrew text that we have existing is 980. That's a thousand years, people, between those two texts. Prove it. Absolutely true. It's over a thousand years. And the Greek Septuagint dates from 200 B.C. Where do we get some, uh, by the way, where do you suppose we get sources for the, old te- the Septuagint that are old in Jesus' day? Because he quotes from them. So our Greek text of the New Testament has embedded in it the Septuagintal text. It has other texts too, but it has that. Now, here's, here's, here's the big differences that people are talking about between these texts. In verse 1, one says, on whom, the other one says, to whom, and the other one says, to whom. Prepositional difference in the text. In verse 2, where I have an asterisk on form, you know, this is the passage, you know, without form or comeliness, you know, we all, we all know that, that reference there. Um, the asterisk refers to a spelling difference. No change in the words, just spell difference. And the second word in verse 2, comeliness, um, the double asterisk means there's a synonym. Another noun was substituted for that comeliness. It means the same thing. The other one, see him and see him, spelling difference. Desire him and desire him, spelling difference. But the Greek Septuagint reconstructs that sentence and makes desire, the verb, into a noun. Or an adjective. Adjectival noun. Um, Notice in verse 3 where the text reads, man of sorrows, man of sorrows, man in calamity. That's the difference between the texts. Known by grief, knows grief, or knows grief. He was despised, we despised him, he was despised. He has borne, he has borne, he has borne, just a spelling difference. And that's the kind of stuff you get into. That's 90% of the stuff, 95% of the stuff looks like that. And if you want some time, I'll, I'll bring in the Hebrew Bible. You can see all the little notes down. And sometimes if you have a Greek text or something, and you'll see the, all these little fine print down the bottom. Well, that's giving you all these textual variations. And sometimes it's interesting to pursue. But our point is that there's the evidence that something preserved the text. 
in on page 82, um, we'll have to conclude because I'm running out of time. But if you look at that pass, the uh, paragraph where it says exactly, if you read with me that that text now, just just follow me in that sen that simple paragraph. Exactly how there came to be a fairly standard Old Testament text in Christ's time is not well understood. Apparently, Ezra began a movement to update the Old Testament text into the language of the people. Where did Ezra live? Babylon or Palestine? He, he was one who came to Palestine. And if you look up in Nehemiah 8, he is explaining the text to the people, meaning he was popularizing it and tr translating because some of them archaic expressions he was smoothing out. That's what that means in Nehemiah 8. Scribes after him copied his text type, portions which show up at Qumran, and which may also be the forerunner of the Greek translation in Egypt of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. While this copying was going on in Palestine and Egypt among the restor restoration remnant of Jews, other Jews still in Babylon also faithfully copied the Old Testament text. Eventually, the Babylonian text type came west to Palestine and was selected by somebody as a standard text for, men, uh, for the book of the scripture, many books of the scripture. All right, now, one little adding note, because we'll get into this in the doctrine next week, but what happened was that that standardization occurred among the rabbis, and they chucked all the other texts. They decided, must have had a conference. It suspected this is what happened. They had a conference, and they said, this is confusing. We've got people with this text, that text. We're going to standardize it. And they chose the Babylonian text type and chucked everything else. Now, the interesting thing was that happened after Jesus Christ and the apostles, which means... And here's the, here's the neat thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll draw a doctrinal conclusion from this later. When Jesus walked this face of this earth with the apostles, the text of the Old Testament varied more than it does today. Because when they walked the face of the earth, they had three translations. We today have only one left. So they had to deal with this. They had three different textual traditions. Now, do you find stress in the Bible, New Testament, um, when they quoting the Old Testament? They just allude to it, quote it. They quote all three. There's, there's evidences of the Qumran text in the Bible, evidences of the Greek Septuagint quoted in the Bible, evidence of the Masoretic text quote. They appeared to be totally oblivious or could care less what text type they used. Now, this should say something to us when we get uptight about a translation or two. Okay? That's the way it was. In the, not saying that translation is important. Get into that. But I want you to see that the text, on the one hand, is very well preserved. On the other hand, it does have variations that are perfectly acceptable to Jesus and the apostles. Okay, well, next week we're going to get to the conclusion of this period. We're going to start tying it together in the form of certain doctrines. And obviously the first doctrine we're going to deal with on page 83 is the doctrine of canonicity and particularly the preservation of the canon. I'm going to pull this together and draw some conclusions by it. Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness through history that you've demonstrated again and again your tremendous capacity to sovereignly control history, to work all things after the counsel of your will in spite of us, in spite of our doubts, in spite of our fears, in spite of our vacillation and distrust of your sovereign hand. And may we be encouraged and we ask that you would encourage our hearts by uh, letting us see more of you as we study these patterns of the Old Testament, that these might encourage our hearts, that they might give us strength in days when we are really taxed almost to our limits as far as chaos, chaos goes. And yet we know that these Jewish people in the Restoration period face far greater chaos than we will ever face in our lives. And they lived through it, they survived, and they went on to enjoy the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that all during this chaos and this upheaval of history, you kept your word, literally, copied from manuscript to manuscript, that we might have the spiritual food of the text of the scriptures. And thank you, Father, for this through the Lord Jesus.
expert on that, but um, that's also the passage where it, it talks about tongues and prophecies and they shall cease or not cease. And when is it going to cease? Is it ceased already or is it the conclusion of the, of the church age? But what I'm getting at is, it, it, generally speaking, you're more biblically informed people that hold to the prophetic gift operating today are careful to qualify it as not being identical to the Old Testament gift. And they have to, because if, they don't, if they're sloppy about that identification, we've got a real problem here. Because what, what they will shy away from, they'll have to shy away from, is making prophetic statements that are infallible. And that's the corollary. If you really have a gift of prophecy, the way the Old Testament people had, when the Holy Spirit worked through those prophets' bays, it was, it was in Aaron all the way. That was a direct... Because what, what they will shy away from, they'll have to shy away from, is making prophetic statements that are infallible. And that's the corollary. If you really have a gift of prophecy, the way the Old Testament people had, when the Holy Spirit worked through those prophets' babes, it was, it was in Aaron all the way. It was a direct revelation from God about history and so on. So, you know, you're, you're more biblically knowledgeable people, in, in, for example, in the Pentecostal circles that are really godly people, are very careful. Uh, what we have out there in the, in the street level is a lot of sloppy talk about it. And that's all I'm trying to correct is a sloppy talk because you can't talk um, without defining terms here carefully because you get into this. You get into this. Oh, yeah. So that's why, that's why in the, they're, they're more, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says that the, the uh, signs and wonders and so on came on the, uh, of the apostles, and the Ephesians 2, apostles and prophets. It's put together because there's active scripture being written. And the, the canon, when you get into the canon, that's what the trouble is. And that's what divides Protestants from Catholics on this point. Um, Catholics argue, there's a lot of issues that come together here. It's, it, this is, it, it's, not, it's not just a peripheral thing. Here's the, here's, here's the, different two, the two lines of argument. The Roman Catholic Church has argued since four or five hundred A.D., and as Protestants, I would say that that's when Roman Catholicism started, not at 100, but at four or five hundred. Their argument is that it was the Church that gave the world the Bible, came out of the Church. Well, then, if the Church gave the world the Bible, then that puts the Church as the custodian of the Bible the interpreter of the Bible. See how it flows? The interpreter of the Bible and therefore the ultimate authority over what the Bible says because the church gave it. Now, the Protestant counter to that logic is that look at the Old Testament. Did, this, did the Old Testament Bible come out of Israel or did it, not? did it not? Yes, it did. The Old Testament text came out from Israel. Do we then argue that Israel was in authority over the Old Testament? Well, clearly not, because all of the prophets are saying that when they preach the Word of God, Israel, you've departed from the Scriptures. What is the standard in the Old Testament to which Israel is held accountable? It is the Old Testament text. And whereas, yes, Moses was part of Israel, and God worked through Moses to give the text, and in that sense, yes, the text came through Israel. But once the text came into existence, that text took authority over Israel. Now, in the New Testament, can anybody think of the passage where this, this very argument happens? It's in a New Testament epistle, and Paul's a guy. And it's that text where he says, I wrote scripture. Now, he, I, I'm paraphrasing. I wrote the scripture. And if I give you another scripture, what am I? It's from Galatians 1. He says, If I or an angel from heaven come 
and teach another gospel than that which you've already been taught, what happens? He's cursed. Now just think of what he said there. If he reversed himself, he would be recursed. So once the scriptures come out into existence, they're locked up. They can't, it's like concrete. The stuff comes out, it hardens, it sets up, and that's it. Can't change it. So if you want a picture, it's, it, concrete is a good picture of this. Of it, of it just sets up, and once it sets up, pal, it's, that's it. So there's the difference philosophically between the Protestant position and the Catholic position on the scriptures, and everything else flows out of that. That's why when we were four or five years ago, we were talking about um, Genesis, and well, gee, Roman Catholicism has never had a problem with creation. Well, no, because they've had the, uh, the capability within their logic of constantly reinterpreting Genesis to accommodate science. Roman, Rome has done backflips accommodating the scriptures. And it began in the Middle Ages because Thomas Aquinas, the chief of all Roman Catholic theologians, basically assumed Aristotle's philosophy and married the scriptures to it. And so you have Aristotle and the Bible become dual in their authority. And Aristotle being a picture of man's, the natural man's reasoning. So you have the natural man's reasoning and to which we add that Thomas, Thomas Aquinas' argument was that a human being comes to God consciousness through their unaided mind. And then after that, we add to that Jesus. The church comes along and adds to that core that's there prior to the church doing it. Well, that's why I keep using this illustration, you know, that you hear me about the interior decorator. And when you order it, the bulldozer arrives, not the interior decorator. That's my way of trying to fight that, that argument, of saying that, no, um, the natural man is a fool. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and Romans 1. He's a fool. We're foolish. And so, therefore, we don't start with the natural man. We start with the Word of God. And if we don't start with the Word of God, we never end up with the Word of God. It's got to be start and finish in the Word of God. So that requires a text. And so that's why we fight so hard in fundamental circles. We fight so hard for the text. Why are we always arguing about the text? And why are there arguments in Christian books arguing about what translation's best? And the, the world looks at that and they think, what are screwy people? What are they worried about the text for? Well, the text is worried because that's the Word of God. That's why we're worried about it. We have a legitimate reason to be concerned with it. We have a legitimate reason to worry about translations, whether translators are playing fun and games with the vocabulary to get a point across here and there. You know, we, we want to know that. So the text is extremely important to us in the fundamental camp. It's inseparable from our faith. Can't have faith in the Word of God if we don't have access to the Word of God. And that's why in history, you can ima well, imagine now, after I gave you these two views of the text, this is why, if you, if you want to read about Huss and Wycliffe, why did the church burn those guys? Let's think about it. Why were the religious authorities ticked off that these guys were translating the text in the language of the people? Because if the people got access to the Word of God, what didn't they then need? They did not need an intermediate priesthood that in the sense, I mean, they would always need a priesthood for prayer and for, you know, ministerial ways. But they wouldn't need the priest in the sense that the priest became an um, essential gap. I mean, you had to confess. To get to God, you had to go through the priest. Now, that link was violated the moment people had the text. So translating the Bible was a revolutionary act. It was an act of total defiance of the authorities. And this is why, to this day, you know, uh, it's fascinating. I, I work in this prison ministry. And in the, in the penal system, it's just because it's a humanist system. And it's not, it's, I'm not picking on the people that run it. It's just that they're humanists like the rest of our society. And they have this thing about the danger of inmates getting together and studying the Bible. You can walk along the halls and see playboys. Excuse me? We can have pornographic literature. That's okay. But the Bible, well, that really is a hot, dangerous document now. You've got to watch it. X-rate it. Well, it is. Because the Bible is a dangerous document. Precisely. They have it right there. 
it's perverted in how they think it's dangerous. But you better believe it's a dangerous book. So wherever the text is honored, simultaneously with a high honoring of the text, you'll have a fear of it. The Roman Catholic position is people shouldn't have the Bible. And, and this is old, old Catholicism before Vatican II. Um, the people shouldn't have the Bible because they, it confuses them. Well, yeah, there are confusing passages in the Scripture. But you can you know, read the Gospel of John and it isn't really that confusing. What's confusing is, it's confusing people who have believed in salvation by works and suddenly they read in the text, salvation by grace. That's what's confusing. So, the battle over the Scriptures is a, is a primary battleground. And, yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. How many people here are former Catholics? That can you remember the, the your Bible, your Catholic Bible? Do you have a Catholic Bible at home somewhere? Uh, with a, with a big one, the, the stuff in the middle that Protestants don't have. Um, that actually was a choice that Rome made to adopt the Septuagint as their control. The, the, those books that the Catholic Church have in there were Jewish books that the Septuagint kind of tacked on. Um, when the Jews translated their Bible, um, they included those. You can buy the Septuagint in a bookstore today. It's not Catholic document. It's, it's prior to Rome. And it's the Hebrew translation into Greek, and they tacked on all those books in there, the, the silent period. But, but the problem is that when the Jews themselves fixed their own canon officially, when they, this text thing got settled, they never accepted that. They themselves rooted those things out. Those things were considered to be wonderful reading. They were nationalistic literature. They're fascinating literature. If you haven't read First Maccabees, you just got to read it as, a, as an adventure story. It's a neat story about. It's like it is to Israel, I guess, what the Texas Alamo is to Texans. I mean, it's a story of a valiant fight for their freedom. It's a neat story. Um, and it also, by the way, it would be good for you to read it for the reason that there you have a picture of probably what's going to happen under the Antichrist. Because the man in history who most closely approximates the future Antichrist is the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes. And if you want to study what the Antichrist looks like, his personality, his political beliefs, um, how he operates, Read the biography of Antiochus because he, he, he's a slick dude. This guy went in there and he, he was humanitarian. He gave money to all kinds of people. He was ecumenical. He believed in accepting everybody and anybody. And I'm very cordial. He wasn't Mr. Horns with Pitchfork. He was a nice guy, except he didn't want to cross him. Then he got ugly. And what he did is he insisted that all religions get together. Now, guess what? One religion didn't get together in 200 B.C. with all the pagans, the Jews. And there's some ways they didn't get together. They refused to uh, operate in the, in the Colosseum in athletic contests naked. They refused to eat pork. They insisted on blood sacrifices to Jehovah God. They insisted that there was only one God, Jehovah, and all others were phonies. And this exclusivity of the Jews infuriated Antiochus Epiphanes. Absolutely infuriated. Drove this guy crazy. And he could not stand the fact that there was this group of people, these hard-nosed right-wing religious extremists, who absolutely refused to go along with it. They were so antisocial. They couldn't be cordial to other people. They couldn't accept other people's beliefs. They were these bigots. And Antiochus considered it his role in life to get rid of the bigots. And the bigots were the Jews. They were the Bible people. And uh, he went after them. And um, the story of the counterattack is Judas Maccabeus. His name means the hammer. 
and he decided that he was he and he and his family lived in this town, Modine. And one day he saw the, the Jewish priests, like the Vichy French, kowtowing to the authorities. He said, I'm going to stop this. And he killed him. And said, you put blood in the altar, and I'll put your blood in the altar. And he started a revolution. And it, 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 this is a neat story, Chris Mackey. Well, to get back to Wade's question, the reason that's in there is because the Jews liked that literature. It was supplementary to the Old Testament. When Rome decided to accept Old Testament canon, they took over the Jewish pop literature. The Protestants, however, said, wait a minute, we go back to the official Jewish canon. What we have in the Protestant Bible is the official Jewish version of the Old Testament. What Catholicism has is more the popular version that has those other documents in it. And those other documents, frankly, we use them in Bible study. Those other documents are very handy. First Maccabees is a great book to find out Greek words and how they were used because they're later, closer to Jesus' time. So a lot of good word studies can come out of them, a lot of good history. Problem is, there's false doctrine in them. Prayers to the dead. Where you say, well, where did Rome get prayers to the dead? Out of, the, out of these books. Uh, I think it's Judith, one of the books. They're praying to the dead. And, and so that's where that, te that teaching all comes out of that stuff. So the, the content, remember what we said? How do you tell a prophet's writings? What's one of the tests? Deuteronomy 13. Theological consistency. There's no prayers of the dead in the Old Testament. Where's this stuff coming from? It's this amalgamation, partial restoration, intermarriage, Jews, Gentiles, they all got mixed together and they got all these crazy beliefs. That's what happened in that period of silence. So false doctrine came in through those books. From the divine viewpoint, there's only one answer, the sovereignty of God. Because they were so hated, <laughs> Jeremiah had to rewrite the text. The texts were destroyed repeatedly. The textual transmission was as fragile as the lineage of Solomon. At one point, the, the Solomonic line was down to a six-year-old that the, nur the nurses were hiding in the temple to keep from getting assassinated. Well, when Josiah the king came into power, they couldn't find any scripture. And he discovered scripture hidden underneath a drawer somewhere. And he pulled it out and he about croaked. Because he realized, boy, I'm the king of this kingdom. This is what we're supposed to be following? Boy, we got a big reform effort to do. So Josiah, the, the very reaction you get in Kings, when Josiah found the scripture, he was terrified. Well, if he was terrified, it means he must never have seen it before in his life. So this is the king who didn't even have a Bible. Uh, an Old Testament professor, and I, we have to close here because it's 9 o'clock, but an Old Testament professor once told me that, and told the class I was in, and I think these are wise words to kind of visualize the process. When you and I read the Old Testament, we kind of get a fake image in one sense of Israel because we are looking at the nation through the eyes of the prophets. If we could take a time machine and go back without that Bible, we would have an utterly different view of Israel. We'd go down the street, they'd be talking about Baal, they'd be, we'd see pagan practices going on, and we'd say, this is the people of God, this is the distinct society that God had got it through Abraham, excuse me. Um, we, we would be kind of shocked to see what really was going on. So when we do read this, this is the purified, refined version of what was really happening. The only analogy I can think of that would make sense to us as Americans is all the time I was uh, in school, in high school and college, I got besieged with a steady diet, uh, diatribes against the religious bigotry of the New England colonies. Constant. Now, Arthur Miller's play, they always had Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. Always had to do that. All Arthur Miller did was marry Marilyn Monroe. I don't know why they had to put his play on again and again in English class, but this is the, the, the big drama. 
Well, it's a big drama simply because it gouges the Puritans. That's why it's a big drama. The English, the English departments know this. And by getting the kids involved in the crucible and, oh, good American play. It's a phony thing. It's an absolute, total um, assault on the Puritans. The best antidote to that is read the Puritans. You can go to the library and get, uh, for example, Cotton Mather's The Invisible War. Read that. Here's the pastor in Boston while all this stuff was supposed to go on. You read what Cotton Mather's talking about there. He had some real problems. And the Puritan pastors were trying to stop some of this massacre. And it was hysteria that went in. They wouldn't listen to the pastors. Don't blame it on the pastors. They lost control. They weren't even listened to. So the best antidote is to read the Puritans' own writings. Then you can figure out who's right in all this. But, you know, that's too close to the Bible. We don't bring that in the public school. Um, so it's original source material that gives you this, this tool. And as far as the summary of the answer there, um, it was a very tenuous existence. And we are so used to carrying around the scriptures without any uh, recrimination, without any restrictions. We get so used to it. We, this is unusual in history to be able to do what we're doing here tonight. This is unusual. Because people don't have the text, the scripture, or in other areas they're not permitted to have the text, the scripture. Think of what life would be like in Iran right now. Today, 1998. Think we'd be doing this in Iran? Somalia, maybe? Peiping? We wouldn't be doing this. This is a privilege that we have here. And that's why the Word of God is such a wonderful thing. And we have to honor it and thank our God for preserving it through all this and giving us the freedom, at least for a while, that we can read it, as long as it's not done in the public school. Okay.